0: Everyone, let's get started. For those of you who might not know me, I'm Tim Newitt. It's the first time I have ever stood up here to do this. Uh, I'm a soon-to-be-retired lawyer who plays the trumpet, privileged to be married to Judy. We both are privileged to be the godparents of beautiful young Eleanor Grace Johnson, and all three of us were privileged to be with all souls at the beginning. So we got a history. Before we start, let's pray. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The 16th what a century. you got all kinds of turmoil going on in Europe. You've got little principalities and dukedoms and all kinds of stuff, uh, particularly in Italy and Germany. Uh, you've got wars. You've got, uh, you've got uh, Tetzel selling indulgences. I, I, I like to think of Tetzel as maybe uh, one of these Guys or gals who hawks food at the ballpark, uh, get your indulgences here, maybe that's an exaggeration, uh, corruption in the Catholic Church, um, all kinds of stuff going on, but overarching it all was the Reformation, and the two giants of the Reformation, as we all know, are Luther and Calvin. And we had had a nice presentation on Calvin last week, so um, maybe we got Calvin in our minds, I hope. Um, I'm probably, like uh, uh, Martin, I'm probably gonna talk more about Luther than about Calvin, but uh, it's the way it goes. Um, As we have learned, there were also reformers all over Europe, Um, in in all the countries of Europe going back to the previous century. You got Jan Hus uh, in Bohemia, and uh, all kinds of reformers, Italians in in England, as Matt has taught us. Um, What about England? Uh, Was there a reformation in England? How did it happen? Well, yeah. Um, Reformation was bubbling up in England in the 16th century, just as it was everywhere else. England did not have a Calvin or a, a, a Luther, but they were paying attention to Calvin and Luther. Uh, A number of German reformers were actually invited to England to uh, talk to Cranmer and the bishops and see what the German Reformation was all about. Uh, Nothing came of it immediately because all the bishops couldn't agree on anything, but as we will see, uh, the 39 articles were heavily influenced by the Augsburg Confession. The two main actors were, obviously, King Henry VIII and Thomas Cranmer, his Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, and the whole, you know, sometimes uh, people who poo-poo the uh, English Reformation say, well, it was all about uh, King Henry and his desire to have a male heir and divorcing and, and cutting off people's heads and stuff, well, that certainly was the, certainly was the precipitating uh, event, but uh, the Reformation was going on in England before and after that, and I suspect probably would have happened without King Henry VIII. Could be wrong about that. Uh, in fact, well, well, Cranmer was maybe the only person who retained King Henry VIII's favor all the way uh, during the king's life. You know, he was very good at. Uh, being bad to people, cutting off heads, putting people in the tower. Um, he never did that to Cranmer. Cranmer was in his favor throughout his life. Uh, Cranmer was also, well, obviously, Cranmer was an, a thoroughgoing monarchist. He believed that the uh, king was, the, or the queen, whoever it may be, was the monarch. That person was in charge. He also believed that that person, eventually, could become the head of the church Before that happened, he wrote a something that I'd like to think of as a legal brief to the Pope, who, if memory serves, was Clement VII, uh, trying to persuade the Pope to annul the marriage of King Henry VIII to Catherine of Aragon because no male heirs. Uh, The Pope ignored him, and eventually uh, Henry VIII says, "Heck with it. Um, We're going to do our own church," Uh, and that happened. Oh, uh, in your, in your uh, materials, the very last page, uh, is a timeline of the 39 articles. How they started, what they went through, and, and it's a summary, not a lot of detail. How they started, what they went through, and how they ended up over a period of 30-some years. And uh, you might want to follow along with that. Um, in 1534, Parliament passed the act of supremacy, there were other acts too, but the biggie was the act of supremacy, uh, where uh, it declared that Henry VIII was the, quote, the supreme head on earth of the Church of England, and guess what happened after that? Uh, Both uh, Henry VIII and Cranmer were, um, excuse me, excommunicated by the Pope. and the English Reformation is on its way. Um, So, Reformation. Um, Henry VIII decided he was gonna have his own church, and Cranmer and the bishops and Henry himself were faced with a problem here. Well, gosh, if we got our own church, how are we gonna do it? What are we gonna believe? Are we going to become a carbon copy of the Roman Catholic Church? Are we going to incorporate any portions of the Reformation?" Um, And basically, Cranmer was the guy in charge of figuring all of this out. Uh, Cranmer did not write every word of the uh, foundational documents of the Anglican Church, the prayer book, and the 39 articles, but uh, he wrote a lot of it and was was, uh, instrumental in the creation of those documents. Cranmer led the process by which the theological position of the Church of England was decided. Uh, Actually, Henry VIII was not much of a theologian and was quite Catholic until the time he died. But uh, little by little, as you will see on that timeline, um, the uh, Protestant Protestant theology began winning out over Catholic theology. Um, So... By the time King Henry uh, Henry VIII dies, um, we get to his sickly son, Edward VI. Yes, he got that male heir, but he was always in poor health and died at the age of 15. However, he was brought up as a Protestant. The regents that ruled ruled while he was in his minority uh, were Protestants, and it it looked like uh, the, the Anglican church was going to become a Protestant church. Uh, more or less, but King Edward VI dies, consumption, I forget what he died of, at age 15, and guess who comes after? Bloody Mary. Uh, Mary I, the oldest daughter of King Henry VIII, uh, becomes queen, becomes monarch, and she is a devout Catholic, and she does everything she can during her short reign to stamp out Protestantism. Um, including uh, burning Thomas Cranmer at the stake, along with his right man hand, uh, Nicholas Ridley, the Bishop of, England, uh, Bishop of London. Um, good story about Cranmer and his burning at the stake. Uh, everybody knows that Thomas Cran- after Mary took the throne, Thomas Cranmer uh, actually recanted his Protestant theology a couple of times, apparently. Um, he was incarcerated and condemned to be burned at the stake. Uh, The day that he was to be burned, he was going to give a sermon in Oxford, and uh, the prepared text had him endorsing the Catholic theology, but he departed from that text and uh, reaffirmed his dedication to Protestant theology. And he said in that sermon, may my right hand enter the flames before anything else because that was what he signed the recantation with and that's what he did. So the Protestant uh, Queen Mary does the best she can to stamp out Protestantism but she dies. Um, Memory does not serve about how long she reigned, two years, something like that, very short time and okay, where are we going from here? Well, King Henry VIII's second daughter becomes Queen, Queen Elizabeth I, the, uh, the long-reigning Virgin Queen. Uh, and she wants to establish a Protestant Church of England, but she wants to cast as wide a net as possible. She wants to bring as many people into that church as possible uh, today, we would say she was inclusive. Uh, and it, she, she, uh, she did her best to be inclusive. Um, a little more detail about the development of the 39 articles. Uh, obviously, as I said, Cranmer uh, was primarily responsible for the 39 articles in the prayer book. He had a lot of help from various bishops um, and deacons and other people. Uh, we need to remember that the 39 articles are not a complete statement of faith. As a matter of fact, they start right out by incorporating, as we lawyers like to say, the um, Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Those are statements of faith. The main purpose of the 39 articles was to figure out and to put down on paper exactly where, where the Church of England um, Diverged from the Catholic Church. Uh, and that's what it does, and a little more. Um, what eventually became the 39 Articles went through many drafts uh, from about 1533 to 1570. Um, and you've got the timeline there. The first draft consisted of 10 articles, were quite Protestant. Hmm. Uh, the next draft, 1539, which was uh, six articles. I don't know why they Hard to find the text of these. I also wanted to find the text of, of the of the forty-two articles, which we'll talk about in a minute. They just don't seem to be anymore, Be anywhere, uh, but of course we do have the text of the thirty-nine, the. do um, you uh, The six articles of fifteen thirty-nine were quite Catholic. Um, lots of, uh, uh, let's see. There was transubstantiation. Um, the. Intervention of the saints, uh, interceding of the saints on our behalf, um, all kinds of Catholic stuff. But uh, during the reign <coughs> excuse me uh, during the reign of Edward VI, the 42 articles were drafted. Edward VI, as I said, was brought up. Protestant. OK. We're heading towards Protestantism in Edward VI's short reign. Uh, and Cranmer and his assistants drafted the 42 Articles, which eventually became the 39. Um, and they were actually promulgated, although they were never followed because King Edward died and Mary took over. Um, after Mary died and uh, Elizabeth wanted to uh, establish a Protestant church, actually, a via, as, as it has become called, the Via Media, between Catholicism and Protestantism. Where I believe we stand today. Um, then the, 30, uh, the forty-two articles were uh, revised, and eventually they were pared down to, 30, pared down to thirty-nine. Uh, Elizabeth didn't like several of the forty-two articles because they were too Protestant, um, too close to uh, too close to extreme Calvinism, uh, and she wanted. Uh, 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 there was also one article that she thought would really uh, offend catholics but by the time she got excommunicated she didn't care anymore Uh, and that was the establishment of the thirty nine articles the thirty nine articles that we know today were promulgated under queen elizabeth and they have been uh, one, of the, one of the two foundational documents of the Anglican Church ever since, and uh, as you have probably seen, our church has got a little pamphlet there: All Souls, Thirty-nine Articles. Now, oops. I've got the wrong page here. I got to tell myself what I'm going to say. Okay. Um, our talk today, and, and I, I emphasize the word "our talk." Our talk is going to be about grace in the 39 articles. Is there grace in the 39 articles? Well, it kind of. You got to kind of search for it. But by golly, it is there. Uh, but let's talk about what grace is, uh, so we understand where we're going to what we're going to be looking for. Uh, grace, uh, the. Um, What I'm gonna say here is going to be very much in the spirit of the 39 articles, okay, what's Protestant, what's Catholic, and I'm I'm gonna find a lot of Protestant stuff in here. So uh, we need to talk about grace as it pertains to the Protestant church or the Protestant churches. Grace is the linchpin, the foundation, the Cornerstone, pick your metaphor of the Protestant Reformation. It is all about grace. Grace is the sole means by which humans can be reconciled to God. Grace is the free gift of God to humankind. The sacrifice of the cross is the propitiation for the sins of mankind once and for all. Um, No one is saved by works. Uh, The Protestant Reformation rejects the whole architecture of the Catholic Church uh, concerning works. It rejects the necessity of auricular confession to the priest, uh, the doing of penance. You know, penance came, both penance and auricular confession were among the Catholic things that were in and out of the drafts. But the uh, Protestant (coughs) theology and Anglican theology reject those. Uh, celebration of the Mass as um, an actual uh, repetition of the sacrifice of Christ for sins confessed. This is, of course, transubstantiation. The, uh, the bread and the wine are actually the body and uh, blood of Christ. They actually become the body and blood of Christ. And therefore, when a priest celebrates the Mass, um, that is an actual recapitulation. Uh, again of Christ's sacrifice for us. Uh, Protestantism rejects that. Uh, it rejects the intercession of saints on behalf of people, rejects masses for the dead, rejects the hierarchy of sins, um, and we're going to see that kind of stuff all the way through the 39 articles. Uh, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. That's where Anglicanism is coming from, and that's the Protestant—that's the- one of the bases of Protestant theology. Okay, um, grace in five minutes. Uh, from, from a layman too. Uh, what what about grace in society? Uh, Grace—the easiest definition and the clearest definition of grace—is unmerited favor. You get something you don't deserve. Uh, you can't, and, but grace is in complete opposition to the law. They bang against each other. Uh, grace is actually quite a weird concept. It doesn't make any sense in the context of our fallen world. Um, for instance, um, a previous, at a previous catechesis, I asked a question about Grace. I uh, uh, referred to the conviction of a horrible crim- recent conviction of a horrible criminal in Chicago. The guy was a drug dealer. He ordered people killed. He was he was evil, evil, evil. And I asked, you know, could grace be extended to this guy? And uh, after the catechesis, uh, Janice, cool- uh, Janice Kuhlman comes up to me and says, "But Tim, what about justice?" Good question. Because we live in a uh, uh, excuse me because we live in a fallen world, um, we've got to have the law. And of course, uh, God gave us the law, but uh, we have developed various codes of law over the centuries, over the millennia. We couldn't exist without the law. We got to have a means of getting along with each other. We got to have a generally accepted. Uh, group of standards of behavior, behavior or society would be chaos. Uh, so you've got to have the law. But grace comes clobbering up against it. Um, back to the idea of justice. You know, children understand that. Those of us who are parents, and there are a lot of parents here, uh, have certainly heard their children say, But Daddy, that's not fair! Um, You know, you do the crime. You do the time. You got it. There there, there has to be a consequence for improper behavior. Or, you know, if always we said, no, 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 just don't do it again, um, we we wouldn't do very well. But um, the extension of grace The extension of unmerited favor can have a a good result. Uh, The book that uh, is the basis for this whole series of catecheses? I don't know, what's the plural of catechesis? Uh, This this whole series is um, Grace, uh, oh shucks, I'm I'm blocking the name now. Grace in, uh, pardon? Yes. Uh, and, and there are all kinds of good examples of, of grace. Uh, r- really, you read this book and, and you say, Holy cow, uh, th- this is, grace is unreal. Um, and there are all kinds of examples of grace, uh, how, grace that doesn't make any sense. But grace can have a good effect, even if it is extended just like that. Um, lots of good examples of that in the Paul's all book, but I'll give you an example from my personal life. You know, the old man's got to tell some stories sometimes. Um, I, when I was a sophomore at Wheaton, it would have been a 62, 63 year, academic year. Uh, we had to take Old Testament survey, and uh, the professor in our class for Old Testament survey was Dr. Ludwigson, a very learned man and a really nice guy. At the end of the semester, first semester, he comes up to me and says, Tim, or he calls me, I don't know, went to his office or what, Tim, we got to talk. You have been, he didn't use the word goofing off, but that's what I was doing. Um, you are not performing up to your ability, and I, you really deserve to get a D, but you know what I'm going to do for you? I want to encourage you to do better, so I'm going to give you a C. Whoa, where'd that come from? And indeed, I straightened up and flew right. Uh, The second semester I worked hard and I got a B and I deserved it. So, and and, and again, you should read Paul Zell's book, it's great. There are more examples of this kind of thing. Uh, Grace coming from nowhere has this wonderful uh, effect. But, you know, is it going to have that kind of effect on a hardened criminal? Hmm, don't think so. Another example of grace uh, that is hard to believe. Uh, you all remember, I'm sure, the, uh, not even the latest shooting of people in their church, the, the shooting of people in the uh, Baptist Church in Charleston, South Carolina. People having a Bible study on a weekday night. Dylan Roof comes in and joins the Bible study and, and starts shooting eventually. Um, and some of the survivors of that catastrophe actually forgave Dylan Roof. Uh, The law didn't forgive him. It sentenced him to death. Um, What what a contrast. Um, I don't know that I could do that, and there were other survivors of that catastrophe that wouldn't do it, but uh, these people are Christians, and they knew about the grace of God. Another example, of course, is uh, Pope John, uh, Pope John Paul, uh, forgiving the guy who attempted to assassinate him. Um, That kind of stuff happens. And that's a pretty amazing example to us. Well, the grace of God, what about the grace? uh, We've been talking about uh, grace in human context. What about the grace of God? in order to understand, and here we're going to start digging into the 39 articles. By the way, before we, uh, before we start digging into the 39 articles, I want you to um, look at Article 6 of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for salvation. That is the, again, very, very Protestant. Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation. So that whatever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith, etc. Okay, we're starting right off with Luther, sola scriptura. In order to understand what grace is in the context of the grace of God extended to us, we've got to understand original sin. Uh, Original sin is the only uh, empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. I think that was Chesterton who said that. Could be wrong. Um, I couldn't track down the the origin, but it's one of my favorite sayings. Um, Original sin is treated in Article 9 of the uh, 39 articles. Let's take a look. Um, Of original or birth sin. Original sin standeth not in the following of Adam, as the Pelagians do vainly talk. Like, okay, original sin is just, you know, we can decide whether or not we're going to follow Adam or not. Hmm. Uh, As we'll see, impossible. As the Pelagians do vainly talk, but it is the fault and corruption of the nature of every man and woman uh, that naturally is engendered of the offspring of Adam, Um, it's good to think of original sin in a tripartite manner. Uh, first, you've got the corruption that the sin of Adam and Eve installed in them, so to speak, it was like a genetic defect or something that is passed down to each and every one of us, um, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to evil. Um, Okay, there we have the second part, propensity to sin. We all have a propensity to sin. Um, and His own nature is evil. So that the flesh lusteth always contrary contrary to the spirit, and therefore in every person born into this world it deserveth God's wrath and damnation. Well, there we are. Original sin, it's stuck in us and we can't do anything about it. Uh, The third uh, of the tripartite way to think about original sin is our own sins. We all commit them. We committed them before we were baptized, committed them afterwards, after we were baptized, and there's going to be lots more about that when we get there. Um, Now, on this subject, I want to quote one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I just love it. Uh, St. Paul's letter to the church at Rome, 7th chapter, 14th, 15th, and 24th verses, uh, uh, verses. For we know that law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There is not, there has never been a, <clears throat> a more eloquent and more concise description of the human condition. That's us, and that's what we suffer from. That takes us to Article 10 of free will. The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and good works to faith and calling upon God. Notice that, to faith and, and calling upon God. You can't really bring yourself to that. Um, we are constrained. Uh, uh, predestination and free will, well, free will anyway. Free will does not mean, lack of free will does not mean that Um, everything that happens to us is decided in advance. What it means is that we are constrained by original sin, um, that we are not able to, by our own works, by dint of our own uh, work, save ourselves or avoid sin. Um, We're stuck with it. We have no power to do good works pleasant and acceptable to God Without the grace, whoa, grace. Without the grace of God, God by Christ preventing us. That would, would mean enabling us. Enabling us that we may have a good will and working with us when we have that good will. Love those last sentences. And working with us when we have good will. Um, as you probably know, uh, particularly from uh, from last week, thank you, Deacon Mary. Um, Calvin, Christ Christ is in us when we are baptized and regenerated. Uh, We may have a good will. So, we can't do it by ourselves. That takes us to Article 11 of the justification of man. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings, wherefore that we are justified by faith only—I love this part—is a most, <clears throat> excuse me, is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Um, you get that in the Thirty-nine Articles. This is sweet; it's comfortable; um, it's the, they're they're encouraging to us. So the only way we can be justified and accounted righteous before God is by the merits of our Lord and Savior. Uh, we need to jump here. Do I have that down here? Uh, not quite. Article 12 of good works. And you know what's coming now. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith, the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ, and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, uh, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. Whoa, scripture, you can see it right there. Um, good works come after they don't come before. They come after we are saved, after we are justified, after we are baptized, and Christ possesses us. Of works before justification, I won't go into that too deeply. That says good works before justification are not looked upon with favor by God. Um, you know, it goes that far. There's the, a huge, uh, huge gulf. Between good works performed before justification and good works performed after justification as a result of that justification. Uh, superrogation, that's, that, that, I won't go into that, but that's uh, even more a rejection of a Catholic doctrine. You've got to do special good works to get more favor. Um, let's see. Well, Article 15: Christ was without sin. It had to be that way. You know, we can't sacrifice ourselves. We couldn't sacrifice any human being for the for the justification of all the rest. Um, Has to be somebody perfect, without sin, and right there it is. Uh, And and that's something that Catholics, Protestants, Christians of all uh, denominations can agree with. Um, And here, okay, I want to I want to jump to Article 31. It's more relevant to where we are. Uh, 30, uh, 21. Oh, no, nope, that's not right. 31. 31, 31, 31. <coughs> Oop, Here we go. Of the one oblation of Christ finished upon the cross. Uh, this is really important. Again, this is very Protestant. The offering of Christ once made in that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the, of the whole world, both original and actual, and that there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone, only Christ, and, and wherefore, a little dig here at the Catholic uh, Church, wherefore the sacrifices of masses in which it's commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead, to have remission of pain or guilt was blasphemous fables, dangerous deceits. Ooh, that's strong language. But um, as I had said before, the uh, the whole business about um, the mass forgiving, uh, 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 the mass being necessary for the propitiation of every sin you commit, uh, you know, that's what bugged Luther so much. That, that I mean, it just... Um, was a horrible thing for him he couldn 't stand it and, and obviously uh, the result of luther 's uh, difficulty with that uh, resulted in his theology the Protestant great deal of the Protestant Reformation and a lot of the thirty nine articles so uh, i won 't say a lot about article uh, twenty Uh, about article 17 going backwards predestination except that it is sweet and pleasant by the way uh, you know anybody want to disagree with me or say uh, uh, knew what you're full of it or or what about this or ask a question please do you know this is a this is a, a conversation um, Oh, absolutely. that it it's sweet and comforting. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, a little side note. Um, Cardinal Newman tried to Cardinal Newman tried to reconcile uh, Catholic theology with uh, Anglican theology. Uh, And he did so in in tract number 90. Uh, They were writing tracts back in those days, the the Anglo-Catholics. And uh, I tried to read it. It it is really thick. I didn't have time to to, to finish it. But actually, um, he failed. He became a Catholic. You can't do it. (laughs) Uh, So, predestination. Obtaining Article 18 to get these all mixed up now. X-E-I. okay of obtaining eternal salvation only by the name of Christ um, that uh, fits in with everything else we're talking about. only Christ. Okay. no works, no nothing, His one oblation. Here is a reaffirmation of the grace of God. Uh, it is only in the name of Christ and his sacrifice once and for all that our sins are forgiven and we are born again. And that's, that's right there in the 39 articles. As Luther concluded, we don't have to worry about whether we will be forgiven. We don't have to, every time we commit a sin, go through the whole process of auricular confession, uh, penance, mass, um, once and for all, don't don't worry, be happy. Uh, yes, that 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 was the, that was a great comfort for this uh, this man that was so so overtaken by fear that uh, he would not be justified. Okay, there's a lot of grace right there, um, but uh, let's finish up with some more grace. Uh, Grace and the sacraments. Obviously, grace is what the sacraments are all about. They are means of grace. Um, Only two sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. uh, And obviously, those were the only ones that were were promulgated by Christ himself. All the other ones, um, Luther had a certain amount of uh, good feeling about some of the others, but he just uh, just couldn't call them sacraments. Um, so first generally of the sacraments article 25 sacraments ordained of christ be not only badges or tokens of christian men's and women's profession but rather they be certain sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and god's goodwill towards us by the which he doth work invisibly that's important work invisibly in us and doth not only quicken but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. That's what's happening when we come to the uh, communion table every Sunday. Anglo-Catholics, I guess. We'll get a little bit to that in a minute. Um, two sacraments and then stuff about, hey, not, the other five are not sacraments. Forget it. Um, okay, let's take them one at a time. Baptism. Article 27 of baptism. Baptism and, and this, this is going to be more questions. I'm going to want to hear from you about this. Baptism is not only a sign of, a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby, as by an instrument, that they receive bap- that they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. The promises, the forgiveness of the forgiveness of sins and of our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost, are visibly signed and sealed. Um, so it's it's a demonstration of faith. Faith is confirmed and by grace you'll hear it again. Grace increased by virtue of prayer unto God. And now the kicker. The baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. Um, okay, more personal stuff. Sorry, um, I was brought up uh, first ten years of my life, Calvary Baptist Church, South Bend, Indiana. The next eleven years or so, the 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 Baptist side of College Church. College Church. Uh, I don't know what they do now, but back in the day, there were Baptists and Presbyterians. You could be. Sprinkled, you could be dunked. I was dunked. Um, and when it came time for Bishop Montgomery to confirm me in the Episcopal Church, he didn't have a problem with that. I, I was very pleased. But uh, that was believers' baptism. That was baptism after a profession of faith. And there are lots of, lots of, just bristles with contradictions. Um, um, Baptism is a sign of profession, a sign of profession, mark of difference. Sign of profession. Okay, when I was, when I was baptized as a Baptist, I would made a profession of faith. But, wait a minute, uh, the, the Anabaptists, uh, the extreme Protestants say, okay, you have to make a profession of faith. You have to accept Christ as your Savior. But doesn't that conflict a little bit with um, the fact that we can do nothing, the fact that we are predestined. Uh, did we, Did I really make a profession of faith by my own will or could I have? Um, but also the baptism of infants. Uh, if you were here when Father Mike's uh, son, or son or daughter, son, was baptized a little while ago, the the um, ambig- ambiguity the ambiguity here well i 'm getting a high sign there okay, one, minute. One, minute. one minute think about the ambiguity. think about the ambiguity. Um, how could a baby make a profession of faith what we 're talking about here is the removal of baptism from um, baptismal regeneration, um, and with that, uh, well, the the Lord's Supper—that's easy to understand—a um, means of grace. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are the way we can directly experience grace, uh, and that's grace in the Thirty-Nine Articles. Thank you.